and welcome to another installment of the Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm sitting here as I record this in the Cambridge office of noted civil libertarian Harvey Silverglate, because we are today going to be doing something a little bit different and talking about the latest installment of the Muzzle Awards which Harvey has been working on for... Harvey, how long have you been working on these? Well, Dan and I have been doing this uh, since our days at the Boston Phoenix, uh, and we have sort of moved the show to GBH. That would be Dan Kennedy, who's holding the microphone up in front of you yes. as you speak. So Dan and I have been have been doing it, um, oh my Lord, uh, about 10, 15 years? The first one was 1998. This is the 20th anniversary edition. Harvey and Dan, were you guys both present at the creation of the muzzles? It was well, Harvey's idea. But it's the, uh, of the Boston Phoenix muzzles. Um, Dan and I really created it. But uh, it was um, a takeoff uh, of sorts of uh, another uh, muzzle award uh, that was given by one of the some national organizations. Do you Thomas remember? Thomas Jefferson Center, right? Yeah, I think it was the Thomas Jefferson Center. So there, there is a uh, precedent for these kinds of awards. We decided to bring it local and make it New England-wide. And uh, I focus on the campus muzzles, of uh, which there are many. And Dan focuses on what we academics call the real world. <laughs> well, let's get to the, the muzzles themselves in a second. But before we do, I want to try to describe a little bit the, the environment that we're in as we have this conversation uh, I think without giving away too much, I can say that this is a, uh, a home in Cambridge near Central Square, a stone's throw from Central Square. And for me, as someone who ha you know, had a cup of coffee living in Cambridge and hasn't done it for a long time, it sort of embodies everything I think of when I think of a, a Cambridge intellectual's living place. But I don't think I'm being evocative enough, so I want to get Peter Kadzis, my WGBH colleague, to try to convey what we're seeing and feeling as we sit here in Harvey's studio. Peter, how would you describe this place? Uh, Canterbridgean is the right word, but I, I have to back up a little bit. See, I always think of Harvey as Elsa's husband, and I'm referring to Elsa Dorfman, the famous photographer, portrait photographer, who when I was a teenager, I, I first came across her work, and Elsa, to me, captured... As I was a working class kid from Dorchester, she made my image of what Harvard Square is. And this is a house that I'd imagine Elsa to live in. Uh, most important, it's not in this floor, is a couch, uh, an empire couch that's down on the first floor. And um, there's a lot of old stuff, um, lovingly taken care of. A lot of books, maybe almost as many as I have, but not quite. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, you can the, – the, uh, some of the air in here I don't think has changed since 1968. But, I mean, that is a compliment. But is that what you were looking for? That is exactly what I was looking for. Peter Kansas, thank you. I want to point out that Elsa was born in Cambridge at the Mount Auburn Hospital. And uh, even though the family – lived in Roxbury, and then eventually moved to Newton. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I came here to go to law school, met Elser, and stayed. 
So I'm a transplant, and I'm told that I still have an accent that betrays Brooklyn and not Dorchester. You, sometimes I think I'm talking to Bernie Sanders. <laughs> All right, before we get to the highlights or lowlights from this year's muzzles, some of our listeners will get the basic idea of the muzzles. But for any ones who don't, who aren't already familiar with this, Dan and Harvey, can you explain what the muzzles are and why you do them every year? Well, uh, essentially the muzzles are outrages against freedom of speech, freedom of expression, sometimes civil liberties uh, that have taken place in New England sometime during the previous year. It was always conceived of as a 4th of July feature because we're a patriotic group here, and uh, and it's good to remind people uh, that that freedom of speech is something we continually have to fight for, and it is denied far too often uh, than it should be. And uh, Harvey's campus muzzles are basically the same thing, but they take place on college campuses. Harvey, anything you'd add to that? If I can add a footnote, what's really interesting about these muzzles that we have been doing for, what, 20 years now, uh, is that you never can predict in any given year whether the majority of the cases that attract your interest is suppression from the left or from the right. The one thing in the culture wars that we're involved in now, um, where the left and the right are, are ready to kill each other, the one thing they agree on is censorship, that the other side doesn't have a right to speak. Otherwise, I don't think I can put my finger on anything that they agree with. That being said... I would like each of you to start off by highlighting a, a muzzle that really made your blood boil in this particular year. My assumption is that on any given year, there's an array of uh, outrages, as I think one of you put it, some of which kind of mildly irk you or you find upsetting or problematic, and some of which really, really enrage you. Before I go any further, Dan, is that a somewhat valid assumption? Or not? Uh, sure, you can you can go with that. But Thank you know, you. I would like to begin by by mentioning a couple that I think are, are really emblematic of the 21st century. I'm going to I'm going to force you to do one. You always try to do this on Beat the Press too. You try to make it complex with the rants and raves and get two points into one. Can I just get you? Can I just get you at the outset? And we'll come back to number two. But give me your top emblematic of the 21st century outrage in the section of the muzzles that you wrote this year. But they're the same. They're the same. But they're the same. You're, you're, you're going to beat me and down they, here. And, they, right. and they transcend the left-right paradigm that Harvey was talking about because now the algorithms are coming to get us. Uh, the one that makes my blood boil is that uh, YouTube, owned by Google, um, suppressed uh, a number of lectures uh, produced for a conservative uh, organization called the Prager University. It's not a university, but it's educational uh, videos of various sorts. And among those was a uh, pro-Israel lecture by Harvard Law School professor Alan Dershowitz. And what they did was, and whether this came about because of the algorithm or because there were a couple of complaints or whatever, it was put into a restricted area. And so if you had your browser set to restricted, 
you couldn't view the video as if there was something transgressive about this. Now, Dennis Prager, who runs this, later said, we got the restriction removed. Well, it must have been temporary, because when I went in and looked months later, uh, the restriction was back on. An identical muzzle goes to Instagram, owned by Facebook. Uh, Instagram uh, banished several uh, paintings of nudes that the Museum of Fine Arts had posted on their internet channel, uh, on their uh, Instagram channel, uh, because it ran afoul of their ban on nudity. And uh, the and and the the thing is, the public square has moved to these social media spaces, and they're unaccountable. Try fighting with Instagram or YouTube. Let me ask you. You said that uh, you don't know why the Dershowitz lecture that was put into the restricted area was put there. You don't know if it was an automated thing or due to complaints, right? Right. With Instagram, we know that Instagram has a policy, what, against showing nipples? Am I right about that? Yes, that is correct. So that, so in that case, do we know if it was complaints versus algorithm, automated versus human-driven or not? We, I, would suggest, I would suspect that it's not algorithmic, but was it a Instagram employee? Was it a complaint from the public? Uh, was it some mindless? I mean, there was the famous photograph uh, of of a child running from uh, a napalm attack in Vietnam years ago that Instagram also or Instagram also censored. Is that Instagram or Facebook? Well, I but okay, you're right. It was Facebook. Instagram is owned by Facebook, so it gets kind of confusing. Um, in that case, Facebook backed down and it went up again. But you end up having to fight these things one at a time. And if you don't have the power of the Museum of Fine Arts or um, or the power of this amazing Pulitzer-winning photo from years ago, uh, you're nowhere. Let, let me t- take us on the digression because th- this, to me, is a very interesting story. It involves the, the now-defunct Portland Phoenix, but um, several, when it was all around, we printed a nude photograph of Allen Ginsberg, uh, taken by Elsa Dorfman, um, a uh, fundamentalist Christian group. Um, began to complain to the head of the supermarket chain, who um, rather than take the newspapers out, called up and said. Could we explain why we ran this picture, which was novel to me? And I said, well, yes, it's a famous photograph of a famous guy, and yes, he is naked, but the copy of this is in the uh, Museum of Fine Arts. So he said, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts says this picture is art. He said, okay, thank you. That's all I need to know. He refused to withdraw the newspapers. Now, I'm just saying... It, it, it restores my faith in common sense. Dan, let me ask you a question about something that you said in, in talking about these two cases. I think there will be some listeners who will say, wait a minute, you've said that the public square has moved into the area of social media or that these two areas have converged. But that's problematic because social media is a space operated by companies that do their business for a profit. It is not the same as the literal public square. It's not the same as telling Alan Dershowitz he cannot stand on a street corner and deliver his pro-Israel lecture. So what would you say to someone who objects that 
you are overstating the degree to which social media should operate the same way the literal public square does. Well, what I would say is that the social media has literally become the public square, and and we have to acknowledge that. You know, one of the first muzzle awards we ever gave out was to a mall that sent that that threw somebody out for wearing an anti-war T-shirt. Um, which they'd purchased in the mall. Which they had purchased in the mall. And, uh, you know, in that particular case, you had a situation where we were pointing out in the Muzzle Awards that the public square had been privatized and was being moved into uh, private retail space. Well, that seems very 20th century and old-fashioned at this point. Now it's moving once again into... Uh, a digital space. Harvey Silverglad, I wanted to ask you for your top or uh, maybe I should say your worst campus muzzle, but before I do that, you wanted to, to follow up on something Dan was saying, right? Yeah, the, there's an underlying problem here. Uh, the underlying problem is that there has been a convergence of the people who control the media through which communication channels run, you know, like the phone lines, for example, uh, and the content. And that is what has produced some of these ghastly instances of, of um, algorithmic censorship. Expand on that a little bit. Okay, I want to make I'm sure I know what you mean. Funny, that's just what I was about to do. When um, I remember a lawsuit I handled for the Boston Phoenix, uh, it involved the Phoenix had a dating service. You called in a number at the Phoenix, and you were connected to um, somebody, a ro potential romantic part. It was sort of a, it was a dating service. And the phone company and told the Phoenix it was going to, New England Telephone at the time was the name, they were going to close down the telephone service because it was being used for immoral services, okay? We went to court in Massachusetts, and the Phoenix won that lawsuit and, in fact, won oh, half a million dollars from the phone company because the court said that the phone company had an obligation to provide the lines regardless of what was the content was. The content, if there was content that was illegal, that was the state took care of that. There was a district attorney for that. The phone company couldn't provide the lines and control the content. That, that was distinction. Then. That distinction seems to me has disappeared, and it is extraordinarily dangerous. In what sense has it disappeared? Disappeared because the people who now provide the media through which communications are sent are also controlling the content that are sent through the media. That's exactly what I thought we won in the case of the Boston Phoenix against the New England Telephone Company. But technological progress, I guess it's progress, technological progress has really made that doctrine that we spent so much money litigating has made it obsolete. Pardon my obtuseness. I just want to make sure that I get this because if I'm slow on the uptake, I'm guessing at least some listeners will be too. How does that apply to the cases that Dan just described? You've got the MFA uh, trying to uh, disseminate images of their uh, scandalous exhibit and Instagram saying, no, you can't do this. And you have uh, YouTube, owned by Google, owned by Alphabet, saying, no, Prager University can't, uh, can't put uh, uh, Alan Dershowitz's pro-Israel lecture up without going to a restricted zone. How does that apply to this well, convergence there's, of— there's a real problem with YouTube exercising censorship over the contents that are placed on, on their uh, site. 
and that's I think that's a very good analogy. It's the uh, it's the 21st century century equivalent of 20th century attempts censorship by the phone company, which failed because they're a public utility. But YouTube can do whatever they want. Well, YouTube is not a public utility. It's a private utility. But nonetheless, it is a utility. And their job is to facilitate communication and not to censor it and judge it. They really have an oversized view, in my opinion, of their function. All right. Now that you've made that point, let me get you to highlight what for you was the most egregious or problematic or troubling of the campus muzzles that you put together this year. With respect to censorship on college campuses, campuses have gone in a very short time from being the most speech-friendly places in the country. There were times when there were things, to use a local analogy, that you could say in Harvard Yard that you would not want to say in Harvard Square with a cop around. That has now been reversed. Now you can say things in Harvard Square that you will get thrown out of school for saying in Harvard Yard. Like what? Well, for example, um, you asked me now about egregious. um, Okay. The most egregious case, I think, that we wrote about this year in the campus muscles was the Middlebury College case, egregious by virtue of the level of um, uh, violence that attended this attempt to censor um, Charles Murray, who was giving a speech up there. Murray is not much liked by the left, especially the progressive left, especially the academic progressive left. Um, And... um, Let's talk about why that is. It's important that, context for people who might not know his work. Why don't people like Charles Murray? <coughs> because Murray has written um, a couple of books, um, primarily The Bell Curve. Um, he's, he's written a couple of books that try to make the case for some relationship between race and intelligence. This is the a very hot-button issue. And... Um, uh, there have, there's a whole industry here of people who have written books and do, done studies in order to try to contradict Murray. It's obviously a very uh, toxic subject uh, in, in a country that is far from uh, uh, you know, uh, a racial paradise. And um, uh, so Murray is very controversial. Uh, he was brought to the campus by a libertarian conservative group. And um, there was a riot. Uh, there was inside. He could not be heard because the students were standing up, turned their backs to him. And that's not the problem. I have no problem with students standing up and turning their backs or, or even leaving uh, because that's constitutionally protected. But what is not constitutionally protected was, number one, the making of so much noise that he couldn't be heard by a couple of students in there who were not part of the demonstration. And um, they were brought to a, an auditorium without anybody in the audience in order to finish the talk. They skipped the Q&A, and they got them out. And as they were leaving, they, they were mobbed, and their car was mobbed. And one of the, the professor, who was interestingly a liberal, she was with Murray. She was a sort of campus escort. And uh, she was hurt. She was hospitalized for a neck injury. Um, this is very, a very worrisome development that people, that students at a liberal arts university 
actually think that it's okay for them to engage in violence in order to shut up somebody they disagree with. And to add insult, insult to injury, the professor in question um, disagreed seriously with all Murray's views. She had read his books, had point-by-point -point criticism, and in an extensive um, uh, and very angry Facebook post after this incident, she explained without naming names that there were colleagues of hers in the crowd yelling at her and Murray, who she knew, who admitted to her beforehand that they had never read Murray's books. So I'm saying that's just adding insult to injury. But, well, when you're studying the campus situation, I have to say, no matter how cynical you are, you ain't cynical enough. <coughs> Excuse me. Harvey, do we know how many of the people who were involved in shouting down Charles Murray or uh, directing violence at him and his campus escort after uh, his appearance, how many of them were Middlebury students and how many of them came to Middlebury's campus from elsewhere? We know that inside the auditorium, the vast majority of students were Middlebury students who made the noise. So the Middlebury students were at the very least involved in censoring the speaker. The re best reports, and I'd say the most reliable reports, is that a substantial number of the students on the outside who engaged in violence were what we used to call outside agitators, although there were a few Middlebury students. So it was a mixture, and the mixture, the, the, the violence was more uh, represented in, in the uh, non-Middlebury students, but not there were some Middlebury students involved. You know, one thing that I've been struck by, I tend to get my Fox News news via social media, Twitter in particular. I, I follow Fox News on there. And on any given day, or I'm usually looking at it at night, on any given evening, sometimes I feel like 99% of the Fox News tweets that I'm looking at are tweets about the suppression of conservative speech on campus. And one thing that strikes me about that is we're in a political situation right now in this country where Republicans control the presidency, both houses of Congress. Uh, they are uh, in pretty good shape and, and looking better uh, heading into the future on the Supreme Court. It seems to me like the campus is the one place where they can sort of routinely identify themselves as the victims of liberals or progressives. And I feel like there's clear political utility in doing that. But as you tell it, this is not simply a question of, of looking for a place where conser of conservatives looking for a place where they can feel victimized. There is a, an actual real lack of tolerance of yep. speech that doesn't fit into the academy. This is my – I have had long experience dealing with campus. When I started my law practice in 67, two years later I was representing the students at Harvard who in an anti-war protest took over University Hall, which Nathan Pusey, then president of Harvard, called the police, and there was a real massacre of a lot of those students, my clients. This is and, not a not a loss-of-life massacre, but... Right, no, some of them were very badly hurt. Uh, the police were not gentle. They never liked the Harvard students anyway, and when they can come in with their batons, they did. Uh, those were my clients. Uh, they were all tried Middlesex Superior Court, in which the jury, not guilty, acquitted them. Uh, just to show you how ugly the police reaction was, that 
12 ordinary citizens couldn't take it, and they quitted all these kids. Um, but uh, the campus has become uh, a very intolerant place, and it's true that if if the right didn't have the student activists on campus and the professors to kick around, they would have had to invent them because they're kind of made for each other. Uh, well, and the right has stoked it a little bit, right? I mean, isn't there sort of a systematic effort to sow outrage on the part of the left on campuses? You know, various groups well, specialize problem, in, I want to say, provocations. The problem is this, and I know that that my friend Dan might disagree with me on this. We've talked about this before. There is a difference between the progressive left and the liberal left. The progressive left doesn't care much about civil liberties, free speech, and so forth. The liberal left it's to the liberal left, it's central to a real 1960s, 70s, 80s liberal. Free speech is a part of what you believe and what you practice. And so there's a bit of a war on campus. There's a lot of wars on the campus. One of them is between the liberal left and the progressive left, the progressive left being the censorship left. And there's also similar situation on the right. There's what I call the fascist right and then the conservative or libertarian right. So there's actually four different political groups on uh, war on the campuses, and it is a real mess. And you have pol- you have leaders, academic leaders, who are not worth the huge inflated salaries that they're paid, and they have no guts whatsoever. I want to give Dan Kennedy a chance to uh, weigh in on that distinction you made between the progressive left and the liberal left. Dan Harvey uh, Silverglade thinks that you might disagree with him. Do you disagree with him there? Uh, No, I don't disagree with him at all. Uh, What I do point out to Harvey from time to time are stories showing that uh, various left-wing professors are uh, punished rather severely for some of their outbursts, uh, especially people who work at public universities where suddenly you have the governor and the legislature uh, insisting on people being fired uh, lest their budgets be cut, uh, which is another difference. I, I should note, by the way, that I work at Northeastern University where we don't have any of these problems whatsoever. All right, now that you've, <laughs> now that you've clarified that for us and for anyone listening, Dan, I, I gave you a hard time folding two into one at the outset, but I want to give you uh, another chance to talk about what for you was an especially egregious example okay. of real-world infringement of free speech or civil liberties this year. Give me one. one okay. More. Quick aside, I don't think that we noted that Peter was the editor of The Phoenix when the muzzle started 20 years ago. And, and Peter was and sitting humbly to my left, not even mentioning that. That's Peter. right. So he was a key part of this. It. Uh, that is true. I was present at the creation, and to give people um, an idea of what was running through my mind, um, the idea was proposed. I thought July 4th, that's a tough issue to fill. Dan, go ahead. It sounds like a great project. (laughs) Indeed. I mean, one of the reasons that we started it was that uh, we've just let everybody go on vacation, and Harvey and I wrote on and on and on and filled the uh, entire news section. You know, I remember from my uh, relatively short amount of time compared to you guys at Phoenix how tough those holiday issues were. It was always so much more work to, you know, work ahead and uh, – Conjures up all sorts of terrible memories. Friends would say to me when they'd see the issue, because it was always a very impressive issue, wow, that must have been a lot of work. And it it was a good amount of work, but it saved so many headaches. 
All right, so Dan Kennedy, your runner-up for most noxious violation of civil liberties or free speech in the real world. Well, this may be the most noxious of all, and it's it's more of a freedom of expression uh, than a strict freedom of speech case, uh, but this is the widely reported story involving the Mystic Valley Regional Charter School in Malden, uh, which we learned uh, a few months ago has a uh, thick and contentious code of uh, a dress code for its students. And for the most part, this dress code applies to everybody. But there is a ban on hair extensions that really doesn't apply to anyone other than uh, black female students who want to have long braids, they want to have dreadlocks, and sometimes they have to, they want to get extensions to make the process go a little bit more quickly. And, uh, you know, Mystic Valley Charter School has dug its heels in. They said this is a dress code that applies to everybody, notwithstanding the fact that this really only applies to uh, one ethnic group. And uh, the the ACLU got involved, the NAACP got involved. State Attorney General Mara Healy sent a uh, hotly worded letter to the school And at that point, the school said, okay, we will not enforce this for the rest of the year, but it's still up in the air what's going to happen here. And we're talking about what uh, a lot of these African-American families believe is an important cultural expression for them, and and they're being told, no, if you go ahead with this, uh, we had, there were kids who had been put on detention, kicked off sports teams, forbidden from going to the prom. I mean, it was really pretty drastic, and it was only aimed at one group of kids. But, you know, aside from the racist overtones or undertones of this, there's another lesson here, uh, and that is uh, administrators in the education field have gone absolutely crazy with their own power. First of all, there are far too many administrators. I mean, the number of bureaucrats in American higher education, which I'm more familiar with, has now exceeded the number of people teaching. Um, That turnaround came from like six or seven years ago. So the real problem, underlying problem, is administrators' sense of their own power, and they wield it to sometimes absurd extents. So you could look at this example as racist. You can also look at it as administrative overbearing. I'm leery of, and I'm glad you raised the point about administrative bloat. I'm leery of privileging that explanation over the racism one in large part because we're four white guys sitting around talking about we are this indeed. issue involving and African-American girls. But your point is very well taken. It is indeed, and and I just want to point out, Personally, I would look at this as being racially discriminatory, racially insensitive. I'm very uncomfortable with labeling it racist. I personally would not do that. But race is at play. But race is at the heart is, of this. The heart of this absolutely. All right. Harvey Silverglade, I think the, uh, the last example to highlight will go to you. Uh, give us one more campus muzzle that really stuck in your craw. Um, I'm going to choose Babson College. And um, the reason I'm... Well, let me first tell tell you a little bit what it was about. It was about after uh, the day that Trump was uh, elected president, these two uh, students from Babson 
rode out in one of their cars to Wellesley in order to ride around the campus in order to kind of rub it in and, uh, you know, yelling Trumpisms uh, on the Wellesley campus. And Wellesley, they, alma mater of Hillary Clinton, who yes, had just lost to Trump. Right? They, they picked Wellesley for that obvious reason. And um, they... Um, uh, word came back to Babson that they had been yelling racial epithets and things of that nature, uh, and without any kind of inquiry, without any kind of fact-finding, uh, the uh, faculty and administration at Babson reacted. They said that these kids could not come back on the campus in Babson. They were proceeding to get them thrown out of school. And it turns out, of course, that when the facts came to light, there was an investigation by the Wellesley campus police. It turned out that uh, all this was was a kind of a um, not terribly polite rubbing it in by the students, but there was no racism. There was none of, none of that. And uh, embarrassed, with a great embarrassment, the Babson administration and faculty had to reverse themselves. Now, what's interesting and disturbing to me about that, and it's hardly the most censorious of all of the campus muscles, but it is very illustrative of the tendency of campus administrators to run off without thinking, without understanding facts, um, without worrying about important academic things like due process and free speech and free thought, um, uh, to, to react and to say, okay, you're out, you're out, you're out. It's that academic takeover. Not that the faculty members were without blame. They uh, all signed petitions. You, you can, nowadays, you can get faculty members to sign a petition that today is Monday. It happens to be Thursday. Um, so uh, it's a very worrisome, it's a tale that's very worrisome about academic and administrative culture. Let me add a footnote to this, too. <clears throat> the media plays a supporting role in this particular case, where in almost all the accounts I read, nowhere did it say in those first-day accounts that um, the, the, that the Babson students were said to or alleged to or reported to. These were facts reported as if they were 100% correct. Um, I'm not suggesting uh, evil motives on the part of the press who took part in this, but I think it's a reminder to all of us, Adam, you and I in the press and all that, um, you know, th th there is something called political correctness, and we just assume that a Trump supporter is going to be a bad person instead of a Trump supporter being a, a sort of jerky 20-year-old kid. Um, in, or some other option. Or, 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 or some other option. But um, what I found particularly disturbing, I wasn't at all surprised when I found out that they, were not, they hadn't done what they were accused of doing. But then the press accounts were almost somewhat begrudging in, in taking it back. And uh, it, it just so shows how delicate speech and truth are. On that note, we got to wrap it up. But I want to make sure that people know where they can find the muzzles when the time comes. So uh, let me hand the microphone back to Peter Kadzis here. Peter, when are these going to be posted at WGBHnews.org? And uh, uh, I guess how can people make sure they see them if they don't miss them, if they go online? 
All you have to do is go to wgbhnews.org um, right now, and you'll you'll find them. It's really simple. The Muzzle Awards, wgbhnews.org. I uh, really should point out that um, the Heather broadcast at WGBH, uh, Phil Radeau, um, was very supportive of this project, and um, I'm just really pleased that GBH is able to bring it to people. All right, Harvey Silverglade and Dan Kennedy, thank you for making time to chat with us about the greatest hits or misses that you guys have picked out this year. And uh, Harvey, thanks for letting us into your, your place here, which honestly I kind of don't want to leave right now. Right, I want to thank you for this opportunity to talk uncensored about the First Amendment problems of the day. Jason, we're going to have to cut that. And Dan, thanks to you too. Thank you. Uh, you know, the, the, the Boston Phoenix for its entire existence was a huge bastion of free speech values, and it's wonderful that the four of us are together talking about that today. Peter Kadzis, of course, as always, it's a pleasure chatting with you. Great to be here. And thanks to all of you out there who listened to another episode of The Scrum. As always, we'd love it if you subscribed to us on iTunes. If you haven't already, while you're at it, please leave a review and maybe rate us, especially if you're feeling generous. You can find us on iTunes online at blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum and at various other places where people get their podcasts. You can also reach Peter Kadzis, our producer, Jason Tresky, or me by email if you have a complaint or if you want to suggest a future topic or just want to chat. We're at scrum at wgbh.org. I'm Adam Riley. Our producer, as I mentioned, is Jason Tresky. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Thank you.